The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. I'm recording this on January 30th, 2023, just starting to emerge from a long period of winter slumber that, well, it actually ended up being a rather fitful winter sleep. It was not me lazing about for six weeks, eating bonbons and reading profound books as I had hoped, as is so often the case. The time I took off for myself coincided with my nearest and dearest really needing me. So I did a lot more logistical coordination and project management and healthcare advocacy and chauffeuring than I expected. I had really needed and wanted to empty out and recharge and just be tended this winter, but that was just not available to me. So I did manage to do some things that were so, so, so beneficial. And I'm sure many of you can relate to this, right? Like you can't get what you want when you want it and need it. So you just are trying to make do with what you do have available to you. So what I did manage to do was so amazing. I did get back in flow with my daily planetary propitiations, the offerings and devotions I like to make. I do a different altar every day for each um, planet that rules over each day of the week. I drew a tarot and an oracle card for myself every day and made notes. And I did like tend my altar every day. I also did a lot of embodiment work. So I attended sessions in the Numinous Network with my colleagues, my other guides. Those were so fabulous. I did a lot of my own therapeutic tremoring and also expanding some spontaneous movement patterns and um, just a, a personal somatic practice that I've been developing for um, several months. I did a lot of listening to music and dancing and I redid over and over again, some of my favorite parts of the courses I've done with my next guest, Jen Murphy. She has a voice and cueing and music selections that just brought me such comfort, real comfort and moments of bone deep healing this winter, just in the, in the spaces in between, you know, oh, so grateful. Jen Murphy is the founder of the Celtic School of Embodiment. You can find her at CelticEmbodiment.com, where she fuses the ancient wisdom of Irish mythology with feminine embodiment coaching. Jen has a degree in medieval Irish and Celtic studies and a master's in the anthropology of development. So she specializes in critical pedagogy, so empowering learners to critique the power structures at play in their own learning experiences. It's so meta. <laughs> we love it. I've loved listening, listening to Jen share the stories of Ireland and weave them with music and embodiment. And so I'm so delighted she agreed to come on the show. I'm so excited to have her on. And just really, I like, she's just one of those people you 
meet her or you like get a sense of her and you just want to be her friend. So it was a huge honor that she said yes. And I know you'll enjoy this one too. So Jen, what identities do you lead with? So what I would say, Carmen, I'd probably keep this, you know, pretty loose. And I would say simply that I am a woman of Eru. So Eru is the goddess after whom Ireland era is named. So yeah, simply a woman of Eru, or perhaps as well, a daughter of the spiral. So the spiral is the most ancient image of the consciousness of that land that I feel very connected to. But um, yeah, if your listeners are wondering from the outset, what is this mad woman talking about? I would just simply (laughs) say that I'm an Irish woman as well. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so... um... I really want to ground our conversation in where you live and your connection to the land and its stories. So tell us a little bit about Ireland or the part of Ireland where you live. And and you've already brought in the the mysticism that seems to be imminent from the land. But how and where and when did your spiritual life become rooted in this combination of earth and myth hmm and such a great question so yeah so I'm from Dublin right I'm a Dubliner born and bred I grew up in a very you know working class suburb of Dublin um but two kind of really fortunate things happened in my childhood that helped me really connect to the land and to myth and the first was when I was about nine, the what was then Boy Scouts of Ireland allowed girls to join, right? So oh. I was one of the first in the door. And, you know, I stayed in scouting for like into my 20s, right? Oh, wow. Like even as a leader, yeah. So like what I did in that context, you know, was I was working, you know, with children and young people in a disadvantaged community, you know, where we got to yeah, develop a love and a connection of nature. And even as a child, it meant me, you know, leaving that suburb and going to the wilds of Ireland and going to, you know, the rural areas and living on the land, you know, and that really imbued in me um, a sense of connection from very young. And then the second thing as well that happened in my childhood is I had an incredible grandmother, right, Mm -hmm. on my maternal line. So my grandmother was called Frances O'Sullivan. She grew up in Pimlico, a real inner city uh, area of Dublin. And she was a brilliant storyteller, um, as was her mother before her and her mother before her. She came from a lineage of storytellers. And, you know, she really fascinated me, you know, with her tales of Irish folklore. And um, she particularly liked macabre tales. I was only having this memory recently of, um, I remember like my friends used to love to come into the house, right? When she was staying with us, you know, cause she was just, she was one of those characters. And I remember one day she brought everybody in and she had us, you know, in this circle, you know, around her sitting on chairs. And she starts to tell us this, you know, horrific story from <laughs> Irish folklore around the law of Marav, which is like this dead hand that's coming after you. And like one of my friends actually got such a fright that she like fell off the chair, went flying across the room. And, you know, it was just that kind of like, I don't know, it was just so much fun and joy and magic that she weaved in. And so much so that I ended up then doing a degree in medieval Irish and Celtic studies, you know, because I was just so enthralled. And I was very lucky because 
I had a lecturer called Myrne Vralkwain, who has sadly since passed, but her specialism was in women in early Irish literature. So I started to see and learn about the role of women and indeed, you know, the feminine expression in our mythology. And also what I was shown there as well is like, because I had spent a lot of time studying, you know, early Irish society. So studying the likes of the Aishdana. So the Aishdana were the most highly revered people in early Ireland. It literally means people of the arts or people of the skills. So like the filler the poet seer, you know, the keeper of the lore, the dree, the druid, the magic maker. So I started to see, you know, this kind of brew coming up of the feminine, of the land, of the magic. But I have to say, Carmen, it's really the embodiment journey that's been the kind of rooting piece for me, you know, that really rooted me in the spirituality, because the more I came home from my body, and that happened a lot later, you know, in life, um, the more, you know, I, yeah, just the deeper the sense that I felt with, you know, the land and, you know, with the earth. And it makes sense because, you know, the earth is like the great body that births us all. And so, you know, in the Irish tradition, you know, land and myth are inextricably linked, you know, and the body plays a role there as well. So, mm. so yeah, so that would be my journey in summary, I feel. What years were you in university? So from, I graduated in 2005. Okay. Okay. So kind of early 2000s, you're getting this awesome medieval Irish feminist education is what it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. That's so great. And the embodiment journey. Well, okay. So I have two questions. The first one is when you talk about going out with scouts into the wilds of Ireland, here where I live, West Coast, Canada, Vancouver Island, um, we're in temperate rainforest. So the elements here are very um, wood and water. Like that's (laughs) really strong and stone because there's like huge mountains and all of that. Um, And when I think of Ireland, it's the wilds seems very different than the wilds that I'm used to. What are the elements that when you're describing the wilds of Ireland, I think for most of us who are settlers who haven't been there recently, we think green, but (laughs) what are the elements that you would say like really um, are most alive when you're going out into the wilds of Ireland? Yeah, so it is the greens, right? That is, that is true, right? The Emerald Isle, but also it's like, um, do you know what sense comes to me it's like mist Carmen that's what it feels like it feels Ireland feels misty Mm -hmm. you know because and it is right because there's so much humidity in the air but just a sense of like you know land rolling green mist and spray like there's just the water is everywhere you know like because they're on this island you know so even in the midlands you have that sense you know so yeah, mist would be the word that I would use. Thank you. That's that's beautiful. So evocative. And then the embodiment journey, did you just sort of stumble into a yoga class one day or were you, did you take dance? Was it what was the embodiment journey rooted in? So I did train actually as a yoga teacher, but it actually wasn't necessarily yoga. Um it was 
it was very intuitive, Carmen. I woke up like I made a wish to a new moon, right? <laughs> and threw a stone in the water where I live. I live by the sea and asking for guidance. And I had a dream that night and I woke up with the words feminine embodiment and I Googled it mm. and I found the School of Embodied Arts and I decided on a complete, like no thought, it was just full body. I'm going to do this and I'm going to train as a feminine embodiment coach. Mm. Amazing. That's beautiful. And I notice as you speak, there's a rhythmicity in that as well, but one of the um, names or one of the modalities you've changed in is, is nonlinear movement. And when mm. I've taken your courses and then taken courses, your sessions with the person you trained with, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been doing in my movement practice where I've sort of started in this like very rigid um therapeutic tremoring these are the steps that you do and it's like pretty controlled and that's great it's very like trauma informed in the sense that sometimes you do need a really really strong container so you can allow something to come through but then eventually it's like oh I just kept kind of moving and wanting to be on all fours and having my head down and then when I was taking courses I was like this is a thing <laughs> so awesome such a great thing I just love it so okay so you're an anthropologist and a coach, and you also guide movement practices. And I'm curious, like for you, how do these things work together to help people get unstuck and break patterns? And is there like a sequence, you know, like, do you, do you have a preference where it's like, we start in the body and then we go to the myths and then you connect with the land, or is it kind of start where you are? Like what, what would you say is where you like to start with land body ritual story? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I suppose, like, I'll preface this by saying, you know, kind of the elements, like, where does, you know, anthropology, feminine embodiment, mythology, how does that all actually work? And I suppose, like, as an anthropologist, my specialism is in critical pedagogy, which is really about looking at the systems of oppression at play in our learning experiences, right? Because mm -hmm. education systems can reproduce social inequalities. So what I'm doing, you know, is bringing that kind of critical lens, but now bringing it more closely to the feminine and to the body, right, with the feminine embodiment piece. And then I'm weaving in the mythology because I want to know, you know, from the what we know of the cosmologies of our ancestors, like what gifts can they bestow to us, you know, for the times that we're in. So often I do begin with myth. It's there's no clear kind of, you know, it's quite fluid, but like, you know, say, for example, if you take a story and I know you've experienced this story and um, like the Selkie, right? So the Selkie, the shape-shifting seal woman um, or in the Irish tradition, who's also um, on Vaijin Vara, right? It means the sea maiden, the Maruk, the Mero, right? And like this yeah, this kind of story just seems to work so well. And I know like the beautiful work of Clarissa Pinkola Estes and Sharon Blackie speak to this as well. But the story often goes that, you know, there is a selkie on the beach, right? You know, maybe with her sisters and a man stumbles across 
and he robs, he takes her seal skin, or it might be a magical cloak, a brat, um, a fishtail or a cap, right? So he's basically taking her connection to the other world, right? Mm -hmm. She cannot get back to the other world because he has robbed that from her. And then she's forced to live in this man's world and her life force begins to deplete. And her only way back is to find her seal skin. So, you know, if we look at this from, you know, the frame of like the seal skin, you know, being symbolic, perhaps of the feminine, right? And the hyper masculine world that we live in. Many of us have, you know, our seal skins have been stolen, have been hidden, or we've given them away, right? In order to survive in this hyper productive societies that we, these hyper productive societies we live in. And so, you know, for me, the work then with the myth is really around telling us or showing us how, you know, to reskill the, the reskilling in the feminine, right? If we can reclaim our seal skin as the feminine and reskill in that, you know, it's a way to kind of find our way back to the other world, to the magic within us. And so, you know, once we've explored the myth, you know, as you've experienced, yeah, dropping it into the body. And that's the brilliant thing about nonlinear movement. You can literally make it your own. It's mm. so magic. So like dropping the selkie into your body and, you know, getting a sense of like allowing her story to fuse with your own life story and allowing your body's natural intelligence then to show you your your own path to reclaim your selfie skin you know and yeah for me like you know myth often comes first but the body is the essential piece because the body holds the ancestral memory you know and that's really mm -hmm. important to my work as well mm -hmm. yeah that is such a dis distilled way of saying it I I've long been interested in selkie stories and um and a, and a lot of those myths, my heritage is Scottish from um, Inverness area, Tullochdelny, and those stories of um, shape-shifting beings who appear as a man and who like seduce the young girl and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. all these sort of like liminal spaces, like it could be water, it could be up in the blueries, or it could be, you know, like different places. And all the ways that women have tried to warn other girls and women about patriarchy mm -hmm. and like not giving up what's yours or just remembering that you have this thing. Um, and yet when I took your course, um, and is it rescuing the seal skin? Is mm. that what it's called? Yeah. Just so people know what they're looking for when they go to your site, the dropping into the body, I did it again and again. I just, I, and I do it with different music. I do, I, it's, it's the kind of practice you can do again and again, because it's like, what's your relationship with the myth today or right now, or in this yeah. lunation or in this, you know, astrological moment, we're always, you know, evolving and growing in relationship. And what I found was that it was probably the third or fourth time of feeling like, okay, I'm dropping the, the seal skin in and, and becoming the sort of the free selkie. Mm. It really was like another way of me doing ancestral healing or ancestral veneration. Mm. It was a different form that I hadn't done before. I'd never really brought so much movement, done lots of trance work with it, you know, lots of ceremonial work with ancestral healing, but the movement, the music, the story, that was really profound. 
it really did feel like it sunk in at a deeper level. So I, I really, I thank you for that. It was a really special oh, moment. Thank you, Carmen. Yeah. So is there a myth or a practice that you found to be particularly helpful the past few years when, you know, people are, are in a lot of overwhelm because of very large scale problems? There's the pandemic, there's climate, there's a lot of financial insecurity. Um, what's been helpful for you in terms of myths or myths with practice for these very large scale overwhelming times? Yeah, so I suppose what's been helpful for me is, and it's going to start off in a negative, just a pre-warning, right? So I've been really sitting, Carmen, with this idea of mythical displacement, right? So I, before I, you know, founded the Celtic School of Embodiment, I worked in human rights for, you know, almost 14 years. So I worked with people who were displaced. So either as an internally displaced person within their own country or across a border, you know, as a refugee. And, you know, displacement not only, you know, takes people obviously from the land that they belong to, but it has huge rupture in the cultural psyche, you know, and, you know, the connection to the mythos of where they come from. And so I've been really kind of feeling into, yeah, this idea that I'm calling kind of mythical displacement. And I feel like we are actually living in an epoch of the mythically displaced, right, where people are displaced from their mythical roots, right? Mythopoetic roots, whatever you want to call it, basically from, you know, the, the mythology and the voice of their ancestors. And we particularly see this in the West, right? You know, and like what that, you know, kind of results in, in a way is, yeah, all of the things that we're seeing, like overwhelm, overconsumption, seeking outside of ourselves, even, you know, cultural appropriation, like, you know, the, 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 the seeking from other cultures often that have been colonized, right, to, you know, because we're feeling that loss within ourselves. And I even, you know, to... <laughs> To get a bit dramatic about it, I actually feel like it even contributes to climate change. Like my husband works in climate justice and I've said to him, you know, can you imagine if everyone felt really rooted in their mythical lineage? I really don't feel that we're we would be at the same juncture that we're at now, you know. And just to kind of really put this in like a kind of more give you an example of the context, right, of like, well, what does this actually look like, you know, and. Um, and I can speak to the Irish tradition, you know, because that's my own culture. So, like, if you look at Ireland, right, obviously we've, um, you know, a long history, um, you know, like of, yeah, essential colonization, right, by what is now um, Great Britain. And as part of that, you know, one of the ways of assimilation is, you know, to speak the English language, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a force of assimilation, you know, where you had to speak the language often to survive because it's a language of power, right? And this is to, to the detriment of Gaelga, you know, our mother tongue, you know, the, the native language. And also what happened within that context is that our place names were anglicized, right? So just to give you an example, like a, a town near where I live is called RD, right? RD means nothing, right? It just means nothing in English, right? But in Gaelga, the word for RD is Balia Aha Erdia, which basically translates as, you know, the town of the Ford of Ferdia, right? 
Ferdia is this beautiful warrior in our mythology, right? And at that fort himself and another warrior called Kukulin um, had this terrible fight, right? Um, you know, they were forced into combat. Both of them were skilled warriors. They had trained with uh, Skahok, uh, which means shadowy one. She was this warrior woman on the Isle of Skye that ran a, um, an academy, essentially, mm. for young warriors. So... Kukulin and Ferdia are forced to fight and Kukulin kills Ferdia and then he grieves for Ferdia at this ford. He's devastated that he's killed him, you know. And like, if you only look at our D, you, you, you can't you can't tell you don't know that this is the place where Ferdia died you know and you can tell nothing about their friendship you know even some people believe they may have been potentially lovers but you can know none of that because there's a displacement you know that's happened so you know that's just a, a, an example from the Irish context and you know I even see it with like 80% of the, 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 the women that I work with are outside of Ireland as well Carmen and you know feeling that kind of you know, disruption, you know, that disconnection. And then, you know, I know like obviously on the North American continent, there's, yeah, the apparent history of slavery, you know, what happened in the displacement of First Nation peoples, particularly when the land is the ancestors, you know, so there's all of that going on. So, you know, what is the 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 antidote, you know, to that, right? Because I'm kind of creating more overwhelm, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> And naming, and and naming it's it, just right? Naming reality, but yeah. but then, right? There is, and obviously, like, there's no one solution to 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 a problem, right? There has to be many solutions. But I am, you know, I really feel that the body is like plays such a crucial role in healing here, right? Because I, you know, I know that many people can't beyond the physical land of their ancestors. They may not know even exactly, you know, what that land is, right? But we know or where that land is, but we know that, you know, we inherit trauma intergenerationally through the body. So for me, like, it seems like a real possibility that we can inherit, you know, that kind of felt sense, that sensory memory of, you know, ancestral wisdom and, you know, a felt sense of place, you know, through the body as well. And, you know, I was thinking about this, like, you know, and this is going to sound mad, but like, just bear with me for a minute, right? But if you think about, you know, Newgrange, so Newgrange is this like 5,000 year old passage tomb, you know, ritual, um, you know, site in Ireland, um, really beautiful, incredible place that's aligned to the rising sun and the winter solstice. The construction of Newgrange is only a hundred grandmothers ago, right? So if each of your grandmothers lived till they were 50, right? You know, that's a hundred grandmothers ago. That's how close we are. So it stands to reason that the body can hold so much for us intergenerationally. And so when we drop the stories of the place of our ancestors into the body, we can have that felt sense that, you know, memory be activated and even when people don't exactly know where their ancestors came from you know myth tends to spread you know kind of similar regions tend to hold very similar myths so even if you knew roughly you know the location of your ancestors you know you don't have to know the exact country you could still you know find some story and play with that in the body and you know I feel like the more we can do that and reroute in our mythical lineage, you know, yeah, I feel like it can 
it can be an antidote to that overwhelm, to hyperproduction, to capitalism, to climate change, to, you know, all of the great challenges that we're facing in our time. I totally agree. And can I tell you a, a quick story about land, like not really knowing where um, you're from? So settler as an identity is a really important identity for me because of exactly what you're talking about. It it speaks to a sense of um, missing home that you've never known, right? And so uh, in my ancestral research, doing the genealogy, and then like looking on maps and all of that stuff, I discovered, you know, found an old article that said, this is where your great, great, great grandmother was from in Scotland here. And so I was like, oh, I'm just going to Google map that to look down the, drop the pin. Now, of course, many things have to happen to kind of align. It's not necessarily accurate, but it did feel like the hand of my ancestors helping me as I dropped this map. And then I, you know, dragged the little person, changed it to street view and the Google map street view comes up. And I was like, what? I swear to God, that is the view from the corner of my grandma's house where I grew up here on Vancouver Island when I was just a little wee kid. You know, my my first five years, I grew up with my mom and her three sisters. So my aunties and my grandma and my great grandma all in this little house. And I swear this looked like the view. So I did a screenshot and I sent it to my auntie Karen and said, hey, do you know where this is? And she goes, oh yeah, that's four ways corner, just like down from the house in Cobble Hill where we grew up. And I was like, no, this is where our ancestors are from in Scotland. And she just couldn't believe it. It looked just exactly the same. So there is something in that mythic memory, or maybe it's that really, you know, that yearning, that deep yearning for landscapes that remind us of where we've been. I do think the ancestors try to put us in places as much as possible, whether we know it or not. Um, that are signs or are trying to, they're trying to seek to support us somehow. I think they're trying to um, take care of us in the unseen, I think. So um, yeah, I I think I'm, I'm totally resonating with what you're saying. So here we are, as we're recording end of January, how do you experience then kind of shifting through time and space to like land over time moving through seasons, how do you experience personally, like coming out of the dark and the winter period? Are you someone who like burst forth at Imboch or are you someone who kind of has a slow start to the year? Um, yeah, I definitely don't burst forth, <laughs> I would say. Um, so like I'm born just before the winter solstice, like a few minutes after midnight, Right. So I'm convinced that that's like, you know, the, the the it's more like, you know, nails dug into the earth being pulled <laughs> by the legs into in bulk type behavior <laughs> as opposed to bursting forth, you know. Um, but, you know, like, yeah, like one thing that does and I, I've actually just been reminded of this lately. One thing that really helps me right with these transitions and particularly the transition right now from the lovely, lovely coziness of sound right into in bulk is there's this idea that, um, you know, and you're probably familiar with this, Carmen, is that, um, you know, our ancestors potentially started their day at sunset as opposed to sunrise, right? Um, you know, and this is kind of like, there's Roman kind of testimonials to this, you know? And also if you look at the Irish context, right? You know, you have like 
e has sauna, right? So, you know, the eve of sound. Or you have like what's going to happen tomorrow, Iha Ela Rija, right? So Bridget's Eve before Imbolc. You know, even Bialtana, you have Iha Bialtana, right? It's always the Eve before, right? So we're getting a sense that they likely, they really valued, you know, the sunset and the day, you know, the 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 the, the initiation of time, you know, at that point. So I do this ritual and I haven't had to do it in sound, but I'll have to do it now <laughs> where I, you know, sometimes begin my day at sunset. Right. So what that looks like, and I love obviously playing with the feminine and masculine polarities, you know, in that dance. So for me, that means, you know, at sunset, OK, this is the beginning of my day. I'm beginning my day in the feminine, you know, by going inward into that reflective space, that creative void, you know, like what is dreaming through? me you know before then literally going to sleep into the dreamscape and then when I awake you know I'm halfway through my day the next morning in a mm -hmm. sense you know um and I am in more of that masculine you know that more of that outward you know being in the world energy that allows whatever was dreamed you know or is dreaming through me to be brought to fruition so yeah I found that like a really um lovely ritual to do to help with these kind of transition times mm. I love that I it's funny because I yeah I write about talk about teach about um the eve before being so important but often I just go to sleep <laughs> after <laughs> like you know if I'm like having some altered time but the idea of like what's dreaming through me and then waking up the next day and being like, and now I'm halfway through my day. I haven't actually quite embodied that morning is halfway through my day. I'm going to, I'm going to play around with that. That's really good. Which myth is pressing upon you most these days and, and how are you allowing that to guide you? Yeah. So, you know, what's really pressing upon me and, you know, it kind of feels to me a little bit odd to say this, you know, um, because this is a myth that I've, you know, known, like worked with for like about 20 years now. It's the idea of the sovereignty goddess and the king, right, um, in the Irish tradition. And this is because I feel like this integration of the divine feminine and masculine is starting to come to fruition for me personally as well. So in Irish mythology, you have the sovereignty goddess who you could almost see her as a descendant of the great mother. Okay. So she's like, you know, the expression of nature. She is the expression of the other world. You know, the feminine really is the face of the other world um, to a degree in Irish mythology. And, you know, she marries the king then who is a mortal. And they marry in this ritual called the Banish Rigi, which means, you know, the wedding feast of kingship. So the sovereignty goddess would have offered a wedding libation. So, you know, a cup or chalice, you know, to the king in honor of their marriage. Right. So kind of like, you know, this is like the origins almost of Arthurian legend here. Um, and in order for, you know, if this was a good marriage, like we don't know exactly how this was enacted. You maybe there was a priestess representing the goddess. There's a whole story as well about a white horse. But, you know, this kind of it likely had some kind of sexual union, but that 
you know, the fertility in that union would have bled onto the land, you know, mm. and it would have ensured the fertility of the land. And you see this even in other traditions like Sumerian tradition with, you know, Inanna, Ishtar, you know, it's not just native to Ireland, but what was necessary in order for this to be a good union and order for, you know, the people and the land to thrive, right? Be or to thrive because the king is representing the people, right? Um, the old Irish word for, you know, a group of people is Tua, which, you know, essentially means tribe, okay? So he represents the Tua and he has to be in divine union with the goddess in order for, you know, the land to flourish. And, you know, there's this really interesting old wisdom tract um, in our tradition called the Adduct Morin. It basically means the Testament of Morin. Morin was this judge, right, in the 700s, we think, and on his deathbed, he wrote this list of what makes a really good king and what will ensure that this partnership prospers. So things like the king, the most important thing was that he was discerning, right? You know, that he was conscientious, that he was honest, that he was generous, that he was, you know, honorable. And this is called, you know, the fear flahman, the prince's truth, right? It was the most important thing that the king can do. And, you know, if he doesn't do this, you know, you're going to be getting plagues, you're going to get like lightning strikes, all of this. And, you know, to give an example of like, you know, the embodiment of this, um, there is a sovereignty goddess called Maeve Latcharig, right? So Maeve means she who intoxicates, right? Again, this pouring, you know, of the libation and Latcharig means red-sided. We don't know why, right? So this Maeve sovereignty goddess lived in Tara, the hill of Tara, which was the seat of the high kings of Ireland. And she had nine successive husbands, right? Because she's immortal and they're all mortal and they're <laughs> dying off and she's marrying another one and all of that. Um, but one of the kings that she marries is called Cormac MacArt, um, which just means Cormac, son of art means bear in old Irish, right? And he embodied this prince's truth so well, right? And their marriage was so divine that it's said that he reigned for 40 years, you know, that... Um, calves were born after three months gestation that there was wasn't enough vessels on the land you know to hold all the milk it's just flooding everywhere that the salmon are bursting out of the rivers you know and that just though gives you an indication of when there's that beautiful integration of the masculine and feminine how everybody thrives you know so I'm really kind of playing with that in my body because I focus so much on the feminine and they're like well how am I embodying the fear flamen, you know, and obviously it goes without saying that, you know, this myth has a lot to teach us, you know, about like climate change as well. And if we could embody more of that union, what might it mean for our societies as well? Oh, that's beautiful. And so you're calling her the sovereignty goddess because there are many different stories or goddesses that would have gone by that name and they're kind of regional or, or over time, like Maeve is just one expression of the sovereignty goddess. Am I getting that right? Yeah, so ancient Ireland was made up of tuas, right? So you've probably got like anywhere between 150 tuas. So again, tribes, uh, 150 to 200 tuas. Um, and each tua would have worshipped, like each tua, you know, or 
a kind of conglomerate of two is would have had a king and the a sovereignty goddess. So this is why Ireland is literally like the land of goddesses, right? Because everybody had to have a goddess, you know, in order for this, you know, to to work. And then obviously it gets centralized after a time, you know, where you have the high king of Ireland as well. But that's why there are many faces, many expressions of that goddess, you know, and the sovereignty is just the bestowing of, you know, that partnership of that power, the sharing of the sovereign, you know, between mm -hmm. the goddess and the king. That makes I sense. love that. I actually know a little bit about medieval Irish um, uh, social structure. I read this book as part of the research for writing my book, The Spirited Kitchen. And it, it, it was by Neris Patterson, who I actually think was Welsh, but she um, wrote this book called um, Clan Lords and Cattlemen, uh, Agriculture in Medieval Irish, or like Social Structure in Medieval Irish <laughs> Agriculture or something like that. I read like this whole book on like inheritance and fostering and, and just like how things worked back then. I found it so fascinating, but it, it, it was um, anyway. And then you know how it is. You like take a, a section out of an entire book and it goes into your own book and then the editor like edits that out. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I think I got like one line or something after the whole book, but I found it super fascinating. I wish she was still alive so I could um yeah, talk more about it. I I mean, yeah, I, I would love to nerd out more on medieval Irish social structure and and how that informs the mythology and mysticism mm -hmm. even today. Um so okay, so we've talked a little bit about Imwalk and now I would love to hear kind of more about how the Celtic calendar is alive in your life. Like you're, you're a mom, you've got little kids, you're a householder. Is there a season of the Celtic calendar that like resonates with you most at this time in your life? Yeah, so what I would say is I do try, you know, to honor the cycles and honor the seasons, you know, and I love anything that brings that to life in a really practical way. And that's why I absolutely love your book, Carmen, you know, because it, yeah, no, it does. It really brings it to life in such a beautiful and nourishing way, like through food. Oh my God, you know, so like, it's just so gorgeous. And that's what I, that's what I feel is, you know, is critical to helping people connect to the Celtic calendar. It has to, you know, have that practical element. Um, and so what I do myself is I have mapped my menstrual cycle because, you know, I'm a woman who menstruates. So I have mapped my menstrual cycle to the Celtic calendar. And I do this with my clients, you know, regardless of whether they bleed or not, you know, because we just use the moon cycle, you know, um, if not. So say, for example, you know, when I'm in, you know, the start of my bleed, I would say, oh, I'm in my inner Samhain, you know, mm -hmm. I'm in, you know, the feminine. I'm in the dark half of the month. It is the new moon. And um, it's a time of rupture, you know, asking, like, what do I want to let die in my life? And, you know, really leaning into the archetype of the Kyliak, you know, at that time of the veiled one. And then, you know, as I kind of move out of, you know, Samhain, there's those crossover days between menstruation and pre-ovulation, you know, which are the winter solstice, the dreaming time. Then you're into pre-ovulation at 
Imbolc, and then you know you eventually get to Bieltna, which is ovulation. You're in you know the light half of the cycle, the full moon. You know the masculine, and I'm like, you know, what do I desire to share? You know more of that energy and leaning into you know maybe the archetype of Anya, you know, who is the kind of shining one, you know, the the radiant fairy queen. So that has really helped me to take something at a that exists at a macro level you know even though I do try to honor that but as you say like you know I have small children and a chaotic life at times you know so this really helps me to yeah to ground into the calendar um, in a similar way like the food does for you as well you know it really kind of brings it back to the body doesn't it you know essentially um and also, yeah, I guess um, it's also, you know, for me, a way to, again, yeah, like make something like even if you practiced, you know, menstrual cycle awareness or you follow, you know, the moon cycle, you're just bringing more of an ancestral frame to it then as well. Yeah. Mm, so true. OK, this is like a personal question, but is there a favorite part of the cycle? for you like I love the new moon part where I'm like okay I'm in my bed <laughs> I'm like not going anywhere I just love that I'm like oh bring me a hot water bottle and chocolate and red wine and I'm just gonna like sit here with my tarot deck you know is there is there a part of the cycle that overlaid with one of the the seasons that you love particularly yeah, I probably I do like the start of sound because I feel like my intuition, I feel like I'm not even in my body. I feel like, you know, I'm nearly like vibrating or something, yes. you know, at the start of it. You know, I feel like that my intuition is at the highest, you know, but then obviously I have two small sons who are not like bringing me any hot water bottles or chocolate or anything. In time they will, Carmen, in time they will. <laughs> We're not right now. So I guess sometimes I do when I get to Bieltna to that stage I'm like you know even though that's not actually my favorite time of the year in my cycle it probably is because I'm like yeah okay I can manage all of this you know I can move through the world with all of this chaos around me so yeah mm. do you have a program where you um do menstrual cycle awareness using the Celtic calendar um, well, I integrate it into all of my programs, you know, so mainly into Mythic Body, my one-to-one -one coaching and the Sovereignty Goddess Incubator, my leadership program, you know, and I've had a number because I'm not a menstrual cycle expert, you know, but I've had a number of women who are look at it, you know, for me to make sure, you know, because I want to make sure that it, it feels right for me, but obviously it has to, um, yeah, feel right for everyone as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure we captured that because I know that there will be some listeners who are like, what is that? I want to do that. <laughs> so um, all of the details we can link to in the show notes. So the final question on the podcast is always the same. How do you cope with grief and rage, Jen? Yeah, it's such an important question. Um, and, you know, really interestingly, um, for me, I, so myself and a beautiful friend of mine, Sarah Richardson, who's a midwife, we've been kind of developing this project that we call Tirnamon, uh, which means, Tirnamon means land of the women, land of the feminine. It's another word really for the other world, right? And as part of this, we, you know, have been working with the Banshee, right? And it wasn't intentional, as in she kind of came to us essentially and, we've been kind of guiding people with the Banshee. 
So I know you're familiar with the Banshee, but maybe just to to share that Banshee comes from uh, Ban, which means woman in Irish. And she means it's very hard to translate to English, but it kind of means, you know, of the hollow hills, of the mounds, of the Tuatha de Danann, right? So essentially, you know, loosely a fairy woman. So she kind of loosely means a fairy woman, but everyone in Ireland, you know, and beyond knows that she's no normal fairy woman. She's the supernatural death messenger, right? So you want to be careful with her. And, you know, like in, in the tradition, she, um, she kind of, prophesizes death right so even in my own family my grandfather died very young he was very ill um, at 37 and my mother and my grandmother both say that they heard the banshee cry for him you know before he passed and his surname was O'Sullivan or O'Sullivan in in Irish which is said to be one of the families that the banshee follows and that sounds kind of scary but it's not it's really just all of the old Gaelic families right because there's a such a history of trauma on this island you know that she's following obviously you know just kind of um yeah it's 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 almost like you know if we're to frame it in this way it's almost like we need the banshee right because we need her to hold our grief mm. and we're terrified of her because we don't want to face our grief mm. you know so that's kind of because she's a solitary archetype so i feel even in irish consciousness you know, that's kind of like the role that she plays. But, you know, what she does is she keen. So she's crying and she's lamenting and she's combing her hair as she does. And keening comes from um, the Irish and Scots Gaelic word for, you know, queena, which just means crying. Um, and there's actually, you know, um, women, you know, in the Irish tradition, um, and in the Scottish tradition as well, in Ireland, they're called the ban quiencha. So the crying, the keening woman, the lamenting woman in Scotland, it's more so the ban me. And so the washer woman. And, you know, what um, these women would have done, um, like in Ireland, you know, keening was practiced when people died. You know, not only did people experience the banshee, but then you had a physical manifestation in the woman, in women themselves, right? Who would have come to funerals and, you know, just scream, like the, the rage, they would have been screaming, tearing their hair out, you know, like doing the whole shebang, you know, and the church tried to do away with it like forever, you know, but sure, like they just couldn't because <laughs> it's one of those, like it's the typical dichotomy in Irish culture of like, I know, Christianity and then the strong belief in the other world as well, you know, <laughs> right. but there's a lot of cognitive distance, I think that goes on here around that, but um, it's great that we've, we've maintained it, you know. But like there's kind of a revival happening of keening in Ireland at the moment, Carmen. And, you know, in myself and Sarah's work and in my and our own personal practices, like to be able to go into the body and just effing rage mm. and wail and lament, you know, it's just so powerful, you know, in terms of moving with and moving through the grief. And also, you know, it um it's so primordial, not only in the bodily sense, but also in, you know, because you can connect it to our tradition, you know, and also like we're coming into Bridget's time, you know, Bridget, you know, was a goddess um, of the Tuatha de Danann, Breach was her name. And she is said to have been the first woman to keen in Ireland mm -hmm. over the death of her son, Ruadon, who died in combat. 
And, you know, the text says that, you know, when breached, you know, keened, um, you know, she was the first woman to keen. And when she did so, she um, devised a whistling to signal by night, right? So that's what they called it, a whistling to signal by night. So even just the poet, like the, the kind of poetics in that, you know, of grief, of rage being, you know, a whistling to signal by night and just making meaning with that. So, yeah. So I feel like actually connecting and being with the banshee, you know, and kind of, um, yeah, kind of sitting with the grief and then using the keen to move through it and to move through the rage has been really, yeah, a great form of alchemy for me personally as well. Jen, thank you so much for all of the myths you've shared with us today. It's been a real balm for my heart, my soul. It it really does feed. It's good food. It it feeds those of us who are pining for a home that we've never lived in. So I really thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Carmen. It was such an honor. Thank you so much. Ah, such beautiful stories and okay it's a cliche because it's true right that accent right (laughs) I mean I could listen all day to that Irish brother oh my gosh so gorgeous find today's show notes at numinouspodcast.com I'll add Jen's gorgeous website super beautiful website go there just to see it celticembodiment.com but I'll also add her Instagram and Facebook accounts Jen offers video on demand courses as well as one-on-one sessions and sometimes special events and workshops um, and a women's leadership program so you should get on her newsletter so that you can find out when her beautiful offerings are available to you My listener shout out today is to Amanda Hildebrand, who wrote a beautiful review of The Spirited Kitchen on Amazon. Um, This one is titled Timeless Reference. As an animist and druid, I have been a fan of Carmen Spaniola for several years on social media. The way she practices her craft with intention, simplicity, and authenticity has resonated with me from the very beginning. With The Spirited Kitchen, Carmen has blended her love of culinary arts and Western European folk customs to create a thoughtful guide of seasonally and culturally appropriate recipes and crafts to celebrate the Wheel of the Year. Gorgeous enough to be a year-round coffee table book, but comprehensive enough to be a reference used over and over again, The Spirited Kitchen has easily moved to the top of my favorites list. This book sings to the 20-year-old in me who adored Martha Stewart and wanted to create beautiful things for my home. And now, the pagan in me, who also wants to create with reverence and devotion to my spirituality. Gift this to yourself and your favorite witch. Oh my goodness, that is me. That is me too. 19, 20 years old, buying Martha Stewart Entertaining and Martha Stewart Living Magazine. And then now, um, as an anti-capitalist, more radical in my politics, uh, but still a Martha fan. I managed to somehow bridge these things in my own life. It makes sense to me, and it's it's just so heartwarming to read that it's um, resonating with others. It's so nice to find kindred spirits out there. Thank you so much also just for like taking the time. I find it so generous when people will write reviews of things on the internet. Like how many times do you Google something and read 
the reviews or read recommendations. I do it all the time. And thank goodness for people who are generous enough to take the time. So if you take the time to write me a review, I want you to know I read them. My editor reads them and um, they're so dear to me. So thank you so much. Okay, quickly as I sign off here, spring 2023, I'm doing something kind of new and different. I've got two giveaways happening exclusively for my newsletter subscribers. So on February 28th, I'm drawing a name from my newsletter subscriber list for someone to win a Witch's Apothecary gift box with ingredients for all your spellcraft needs. It's a really special and lovely box featuring over two dozen botanicals from my own garden, a pendulum, a selenite wand, a rose and damiana tincture made by my friend Nakaya of Red Moon Mystery School, and other little goodies specially gathered and packaged by me for you. But you got to be on my newsletter. The other one is March 28th, the next month, I'm drawing again from my newsletter list for one lucky person to win an incredible emergency kit for your car. This is because I have my mind on collapse prep. I have for like seven or eight months, kind of go through phases where it's like really focused and then kind of tones down a bit. It's been very focused for me again for the last half year. So we don't even own a car, but we have a car kit so that when we go out in like we have a um, car co-op membership, if we're doing like a road trip or something like that, we bring the car kit. If we're borrowing a friend's car to like drive to the beach or something like that, we have a car kit. So it's like a little emergency kit with easy to use first aid supplies, but also more, right? Like roadside emergency things. So I have a kit from MyMedic. If you don't know MyMedic.com, you should go there. MyMedic, M-Y-M-E-D-I-C. This is not an ad. I am not being sponsored, though I would love to be sponsored by my medic if you know anyone. I'd be happy to sing their praises all day because they have these really intuitive and easy to use first aid supplies. They're color coded and have really good like instructional labels. So you don't have to have taken a first aid kit to kind of be able to like walk through what you would need to do in an emergency. It's really good for people who get overwhelmed or intimidated by first aid. So anyway, I'm giving away their car kit. It's the Popular Mechanics My Medic collaboration. It's worth like 140 bucks US. So um, you got to be on my mailing list to win though. So make sure you're subscribed. Just sign up at my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.